Well, uh, welcome uh, to Wollongong Baptist Church. Uh, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new or visiting and you're keen to get connected in, can I encourage you to fill in a Connect card uh, that is on the welcome table? And there's also a welcome booklet which tells you more about our uh, church. Um, after this sermon, we're also going to have uh, question and answer time. So if you've got any questions, mate, there might be a few uh, for tonight, uh, please feel free to text them in. Uh, there'll be a number that will come up on the screen. Uh, as you can tell, we're in a series in the book of Judges. Uh, and last week, I laid the foundation for us a little bit. I explained how this book is primarily a historical narrative, and so therefore we've got to be careful how we interpret uh, this book. Uh, but in particular, the thing I encourage us to do is that as we look at this narrative and as we look at these stories, that we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the strong, but instead we put ourselves in the shoes of the weak. It's really important that we do that. It's really important we do that because as something hopefully I hammered into you last week is that all of us here are broken. All of us here are broken, and all of us need rescue. And the good news of this book is that rescue is coming, of course, in the form of Jesus. And so this is week two. Uh, we're going to dig into the topic, I suppose, of testing and trials tonight, and how God brings triumph. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. And if you'd like to pray with me, that would be great. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the Old Testament and the book of Judges. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight by your Spirit to understand it and to be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that by the end of this, uh, we may grow in our affection for Christ Jesus, who He is, what He's done, and how He's our ultimate judge and rescuer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, tonight we're going to get introduced to uh, two of the 12 judges that are uh, talked about in the book of Judges. Uh, but before we do that, there's some text that I didn't actually cover last week that I need to cover before we get into the stories of the judges. And so we'll come up on the screen, and we're going to look at verses uh, 19 to 23 from chapter 2. And this is what the author says. He says, But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And therefore the Lord was very angry with them. And Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant... I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the ways of the Lord and walk as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. You see, last week I really emphasized how the Canaanites were in the land because of the disobedience of the Israelites and how they didn't obey God and drive out the Canaanites. But what's really interesting here is that towards the end of chapter 2, it's also saying to us that the reason why the Canaanites are still in the land is because God wants them there to test the Israelites. To test the Israelites. I don't know about you, but personally, I hate tests. I hate the study that is required for them. I hate the anxiety that comes with them. I hate the stress of it. I hate how nervous you feel before you go into them. Uh, and it pains me to say this, uh, but the test I hate, that hated the most in my life was the peace test. I'm going to see most of you here have done the peace test. If you haven't, uh, good luck to you. Um, this is quite embarrassing, but I failed mine three times. Like, I hated that test so much. I, I don't like tests. And my guess is that you're the same. And my guess is, is that Israel is also the same. You know, I, I, my guess is that Israel would have preferred for God just to drop a nuke on the land of Canaan, so they could have just walked in and there would be no Canaanites for them to fight. 
Or, or when they weren't able to drive them out, my guess is, is they would have preferred for God just to send the angel of death, Exodus style, and just wipe them all out. So they didn't have to deal with the Canaanites. And yet God does this to test the Israelites. And do you know what? God does a similar thing to us today in testing us who are called ourselves followers of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for 10 years. Uh, actually, a little bit more than that since I was about 17 now. In the last 10 years, uh, I've grown. Don't get me wrong, I'm not the man that I used to be, but I'm also not the man that I wish I was. Like, I've grown, I've progressed in my faith, but there's still some areas in my life, some sins, some temptations, some trials, some tests, that I feel like I just can't get over. I feel like I keep on struggling with the same things. To use the analogy from last week, I feel like I've still got some unconquered Canaanites in my heart that I don't seem to be able to defeat. You know, I feel like I'm sending out gospel warriors, they're huge tanks of dudes, and you know, they're trying to defeat these Canaanites. You know, I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to conferences, you know, I'm praying, I'm going to church, I'm reading books. And yet there's still areas in my life that I struggle with. Like, I want to feel the same. Like, I'm still anxious about the future. Like, I still find it hard to be generous. I still doubt God's power. I'm still tempted to have lustful thoughts. I'm still tempted to disengage with God's people. Don't get me wrong, I've seen progress in my life, but at the same time, I haven't seen complete victory, complete triumph. Which begs the question, why, why doesn't God just make us completely holy when we become followers of Jesus? Like if Christ has defeated sin at the cross, if I have the Holy Spirit within me, why am I not just perfect right now? Why do I still have trials? Why do I still have tests? Why do I still have temptation to disobey my glorious God? Why does God test us. Well, tonight, from these two stories, from these two judges, I'm going to give us three reasons as to why God tests us. And we're going to learn these three reasons from these two stories of Othniel and Ehud, the two first judges that we meet in the book. And so let's get into it and let's have a look at these two judges and let's begin with Othniel. Now, to be honest, I don't actually want to spend a lot of time with Othniel because uh, he's boring, um, if I'm honest. Um, but let me give you two important points about Othniel, which is important for us to pick up. Uh, the first one is, I think Othniel is put first in the book of Judges uh, to give us a good judge, right? Like if you were to do a ranking system out of the judges in the book, which I know Brad Parsons' group did in home group, uh, you give a 10 for Jesus, and then you maybe give like a 9 for Joshua, and then you give an 8 for Othniel. Like he's a good guy. There's not many flaws about him. But as we'll see as the weeks go on and on and on, the judges are going to get worse and worse and worse. So I think Othniel is presented first to say, hey, you know, this is an okay judge. There's nothing wrong with him. So I think that's the first reason why he's placed here. But the second reason this story is given to us is to once again make it clear to us the cycle within judges. The cycle within judges. And so it will come up on the screen at the verses which, I guess, unpack for us the story of Othniel. And I won't read it all because truth be told, I don't have time. But hopefully, the, I guess the bold red um, words can make it clear to you that there's rebellion, that there's retribution from God, that there's repentance from the Israelites, that there's rescue through a judge uh, by, given by God, but then the judge dies and the cycle repeats again. And so that's what I want us to see when it comes to this story, is that Othniel is an okay judge, but the judges are going to get worse, and that there you see the cycle of judges. But let's move on from Othniel, because he's boring. And let's look at Ehud, because this is a bit more fun. Uh, but before we do this, I want you to put your hand up if you're left-handed. Put your hand up if you're left-handed. Okay, 
you poor, poor, poor people. Like, honestly, like there's some advantages with being left-handed. Like, for example, you dominate in sport in particular and you fool us righties with your alien movements, you know? Like, that's an advantage there. Uh, and according to uh, scientific research, uh, if you are left-handed, uh, there's a higher possibility that you'll have an IQ over 140. Um, so, you know, you're smart as well as good at sports. Um, but that's where all the good things stop, okay? Because being left-handed is terrible for many reasons. Uh, the most obvious one is whenever you write, the ink smears across the page, you know. All scissors are incredibly awkward. Uh, trying to zip up your pants is very hard because the flap is in the way. Uh, university tables are for right-handers, not for left. Uh, and then on top of that, the most important thing of all is that gaming consoles are, like, incredibly awkward. You know, being left-handed in many ways is terrible. You know, and, and, and it has been for a long time. Like, historically, for a long time, being left-handed is a disadvantage. Matter of fact, the Latin word for left being left-handed is sinister, which also means evil, right? <laughs> if you didn't get that. You know, or, or, or the, left, the word for left in uh, French is gauche, which also means awkward. Um, and then even the word for left-handed in the old uh, English language comes from another word, which means weak. Okay, so the being left-handed is terrible. I'm sorry if you're left-handed. Now, if you, it, is, it is pretty terrible to be left-handed, but you know what? Actually, three and a half thousand years ago, it was even worse to be left-handed. Like, I kid you not, to be left-handed in the time of judges was a disability. Like, a disability. Like, if you're left-handed here, could you imagine going and applying for a disability permit because you're left-handed? Like, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. But back in the day of judges, this was the case. And so to be left-handed was a huge disadvantage. And that's what makes the story of Ehud, or one of the reasons, really interesting. And so let's have a look at this story. and Let's go through it. Let me unpack it for you and let's have some fun. And let's begin by getting introduced to uh, the villain of the story, uh, Eglon. And so let me read to us uh, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho, if you didn't know. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, I want to make this clear. Eglon, or Eglon, sorry, is a bad guy. Like, just his name sounds bad, right? Like, Eglon. Like, you know, like, He's just a bad dude. Like, this is a guy for 18 years that he would have raped, plundered, and murdered the Israelites. Like, he took out Jericho, you know, the famous city who God brought the walls down from. Like, this is a bad dude. And so, at this point in the time of the story, like always, we should be thinking, oh no, well, what's going to happen? Because if the Israelites cry out, they ask for help, and you think, well, how's God going to save? How's God going to deliver? Is he going to use Othniel, you know, a predicted military-like judge, or is he going to use an unexpected hero? And then we read verse 15 and we learn what he uses, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerard, the Benjamite. You see, this is a a left-handed guy, but he's also from the smallest tribe of Benjamin. You see, this is an unexpected hero. Yet nevertheless, the Israelites send Ehud with a tribute to Eglon. And that's what Ehud does. But just before he does that, actually, he makes a 45-centimeter sword, uh, double-bladed sides, uh, and he put straps it to his right side, not his left side. Now, back in those days, because everyone's right-handed, because, you know, you're disabled if you're not, um, you strap your sword to your left-hand side so you can pull your sword out. So, obviously, this was unique. 
And at this point in time, you should be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, there's a bit of tension here in the story. Like, is Ehud going to get away with this? Is he going to be able to enter the palace, you know, with the sword strapped to his side? Is he going to be able to get close enough to Eglon to kill him? Well, let's see what happens. Let's have a look at verse 17. He, that's Ehud, presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, I don't know how fat you've got to be for the Bible to describe you as a very fat man, but my guess is, is that he's pretty big. As we'll learn in a second, he's big enough to swallow a sword whole. But anyway, like, what ends up happening here is so like, he's a big, fat man. Ehud comes, he presents the tribute, and then over time he also comes back to him and he says to Eglon, hey, Eglon, I've got a secret message for you. And so what does Eglon do? He's like, oh, cool, secret message. It's like, sweet. And he's like, guards, leave me with this man I do not know to hear from his secret message. And at that point in time, you're like, what a fool, right? Like, like who wants to be by themselves with some random that you don't know who's actually from a country that you've actually been, you know, dominating for 18 years? Well, you've got to keep in mind, he's left-handed. He's, you know, he's disabled. You know, he's, he's not going to cause any harm. But what ends up happening well, I don't know about you, but um, when I picture this scene, I cannot picture, I, cannot picture, I cannot picture this without thinking of Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars, but let's have a look. Let's see what happens in verse 20, 21 and 23. It says this, As the king rose from his seat, that could have taken a while, um, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Now, actually, the NIV is being polite there. In the original Hebrew, it actually says, and the dung came out, um, which is pretty full on. Uh, Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Now, this is pretty full on. You know, and I can just picture as the fat closes in, there's like this huge sucking sound of like, like, oh. Like, at, at this point in the story, we should be like, yes! You know, the evil king is defeated. Yes! Like, this is the best part of the story. But we also should be thinking, oh no, how's Ehud going to get out? How's he going to survive? Like, he's just killed the king. So then we read on. It tells us, then Ehud went up to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. You know, because it stunk. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when they did not open the doors, I mean, but when they did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. Um, I don't know about you, I don't know how long you wait until someone's on the toilet and you knock on the door and you say, hey, everything okay? Um, but my guess is that these guys waited a long time because as you, probably all of us, unfortunately, by experience know, there's nothing more awkward than when you interrupt someone who's doing their business. And, and so that's the same thing happening here. He's the king, right? So you're not going to enter the king while he's on the toilet. And so they probably waited for hours and hours. And then eventually they're like, this is a bit weird. And so they opened the doors and they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead, dead. And by this time, we're like, yes, once again. And by then, Ehud had escaped, right? He's escaped. He's rallied the troops. He's got a trumpet out. He's blown the trumpet. He's got all the troops together and they're ready. They come. They attack the, 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 um, the army of Moab. They defeat them. And then the land has peace for 40 years. What a story. What a story. Heaps more interesting than Othniel. But what do these stories teach us when it comes to the question of why does God test us? That's why does God test us? 
Well, like I said, I have three reasons as to why God tests us from this story. And the first one is this, is that God tests us to humble us. That God tests us to humble us. I don't know about you, but uh, personally, I don't like to be humbled. Uh, I think it's one reason why Mark Roberts works alongside me. Uh, I, I don't like, uh, you know, the fact that I had to, you know, you know, when you trip over in public and people laugh at you, like I find that difficult. Uh, I was driving a purple scooter for seven months and that was humiliating. Um, I don't look like going, looking for lessons on humility. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't Google how to grow in humility. I just don't do that throughout the week. Uh, and I don't pray, or I rarely pray, that I'll grow in humility. And if I do, I, you know, I find it quite difficult. I want to feel the same. But you know what's really interesting is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, it's really critical to your faith and to your soul that you get used to the taste of humble pie. That you get used to the taste of humble pie. You see, Ehud and Eglon, this is a gruesome story, but it's also a funny story. Like, it's okay for you to laugh. Like, really, it is. And it's a funny story because an arrogant king is embarrassingly humbled. An arrogant king is embarrassingly humbled. I don't know what reality TV show you watch. Uh, As a lot of people know, I'm a huge Survivor fan. Uh, And in Survivor, probably the most common narrative and the best one is when you see the arrogant people get humbled. Like, it never gets old. Never gets old, and it's always delightful to see people say, yeah, I'm going to win this, get voted off that same night. You see, this king was arrogant, right? Like, this king, he raped, he killed, he abused the Israelites, he stole their food to feed his huge appetite. For 18 years, when he was in charge, he would have grown in physical fatness as well as arrogance. This is an arrogant man. And so when he rose from the throne... And he told his attendants to leave is because he thought he was untouchable. It's because he thought he was invincible. He didn't fear God. He didn't obey God. He worshipped his own gods that he created. And ultimately, he worshipped himself because he was the king. He was the king. Last week, we talked about idols. And uh, one idol that I forgot to mention, which is actually a really big one in all of our lives is that our biggest idol can be ourselves. Our biggest idol can be ourselves. And so the person or the thing in your life that you're most tempted towards bowing down to and bringing glory to is actually the image that you see reflected upon you each morning you wake up and look in the mirror. In a culture that is obsessed with self-image, selfies and self-promotion, one of the main sources of conflict in your life with other people is going to be your own arrogance. It's going to be your own God complex. And so what the Bible wants to lovingly say to us is that we're not as awesome as we think we are. We're not as awesome as we think we are. You see, God tests us in this life to humble us. You see, throughout the book of Judges, the Israelites' arrogance is a key problem for them. Like I said, there's a repeated cycle that occurs again and again and again. And the one line that you see over and over again, which you see in verse 12 of chapter 3, is this. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Like you think they would have gotten it, right? You think they would have gotten the fact that if they disobey God and they follow idols and they do their own thing, that it's going to lead to disaster. Because they saw that pattern again and again and again. But their arrogance is what prevented them from learning from their past mistakes, from learning from the generations before them. Like, no, 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 we're better than that generation. We won't make the same mistakes as them. You see, they perform the mistake of chronological snubbery, which C.S. Lewis talks about. And you know what? We can do the same. 
We can go, nah, our generation's different, right? You know, we're the millennials or we're the Gen X, we're the Gen Ys. We're going to conquer this world. We don't need to learn from those who have gone before us. And so a simple question I've got for all of us here, through the tests and the trials that you're going through, how's God trying to humble you? How's God trying to humble you? For the last uh, week, uh, my voice has not been working, uh, which was quite entertaining uh, for the, uh, the staff members here because we were in staff meetings and I had to type my answers to their questions. Uh, but it was pretty frustrating. Uh, and for this week, I had to write two talks for a men and meet night last night as well as this sermon. And I was pretty angry at God. I was like, God, like, what are you doing? You know, like, I've got to try and write an awesome talk like last week. So I was pretty chuffed with last week's sermon. And I'm like, God, what are you doing, right? Like, I need to be able to do this. Like, you're in my way here. And because I'm thick, it took me a bit of a time until the Spirit convicted me. It's like, hey, Joel, you're not that awesome. You know, even your voice, which is your main tool for your occupation, is in my hands. As a helpful reminder to me that I'm not as awesome as I think I am. And I think God does this all the time for the different tests and trials of life. He tries to humble us because it's good for us. Reason number one why God tests us is to humble us. Reason number two is to remind us of his goodness. It's to remind us of his goodness. Let me read to you some verses that will come up on the screen, which is important for us to understand. This is from Judges 2, verse 10. It says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Judges 3, verse 7, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. When it says here that the generation didn't know the Lord or what he did, it's not saying that they had no idea as to who God was. Like this is the Jewish people, right? They were good at passing down to their, other, their children and the generations that are, um, after them as to what God had done. You know, these, these generations would have heard about the walls of Jericho. They would have heard about Exodus and the Red Sea. They would have heard about God's saving acts. But when it says that they never knew this, what they mean by this is that God's saving acts were no longer precious to them. They didn't revere and rejoice in God and the good news of the gospel. Their hearts had gotten hard to God and what he'd done. There's a book on the book of Judges by Tim Keller called Judges for You. I recommended it last week. I recommend it again this week because it's very good. Uh, and there's a great quote that I want to read to us from Tim Keller on this issue. He says this, he says, Our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. Though we know truths about God, we can very easily lose the sense upon our hearts of their reality. We know them, but we don't taste or see or feel them. Therefore, other things, idols, become more real to our hearts, and we serve them instead. I love this imagery, that, that our hearts are like buckets of ice that we need to keep on smashing down. And I love this imagery because I feel as a pastor, one of the reasons why my job can be difficult, it's not that difficult, it's a great job, but one of the reasons why it can be difficult is because I feel like I'm a broken record. Like I feel like I say the same things week in, week out while I'm up here. And I should because we need to hear it. Because the reality is, is that we have forgetful minds and our hearts are stubborn. And so we need to be reminded of the same truths week after week after week as to how good God is. 
Because there's a simple truth that we need to digest. And the truth is this, is that forgetfulness produces unfaithfulness. That forgetfulness produces unfaithfulness. You see, church, there's a reason why we gather every Sunday at 6 p.m. And there's a reason why we gather and someone speaks to us from the Bible. There's a reason why every week we sing the same songs, why we pray to God, why we do the Lord's Supper. There's a reason why we encourage you to read God's Word, to get connected into a home group and to serve one another. And we don't do all these things because we want to make you busy. We do all these things and encourage you to do them because you're forgetful. Because I'm forgetful. You see, we need these gospel rhythms in our lives to remind us of God and His goodness. Because the reality is, is that we forget how good He is. We forget what He's done at the cross. We forget how we need His power to sustain us and help us. How we need His Spirit and the power of prayer. Forgetfulness produces unfaithfulness. And so a simple question for you through the different tests or trials you're going through. How is God trying to remind you of his goodness? How is God trying to remind you of his goodness? Reason number one, God tests us to humble us. Reason number two, God tests us to remind us of his goodness. Reason number three, God tests us to remind us that we need him. To remind us that we need him. Um, in uh, two months' time, uh, my wife, Emma, is uh, going to give birth to a baby, and so therefore I'll have uh, more than just my two boys of Eli and Isaac, uh, but I'll have uh, more than that. Uh, and I've got to say that before I became a parent, I thought parenting would be pretty easy. Like, in my head, I was like, you just got to talk to them and, you know, just explain things to them because they're rational human beings, and they'll just respect you and listen to you. It's a complete lie. Like, they're, they're not rational. They're emotional little, little beings. Uh, and so as a parent, it's quite difficult, as most of you here would know. And, but luckily, I've learned a few tools over the years. Uh, I'm not proud of these three tools, but, you know, they work, and so I use them. Uh, the first one is bribery. Uh, the second one is uh, threats. Uh, and the third one is a, a thing called detachment theory. Now, you're like, what's detachment theory, Joel? Please teach me your wisdom. Um, uh, on plenty of times when I go to the shops, uh, for some reason, uh, like someone made these evil machines. They're these big toy machines, and they've like, got wiggles or a bus or a car, uh, and they're you know loud and noisy. Put two dollars in, and it attracts kids like a magnet. And so my kids go there every single time. When they get there, they just will not leave. They just will not leave. And so after like ten minutes, I'm like, all right, all right kids, I'm going to go home. Okay? Like, and they're like, no, no, dad, this is our home now, so you can go. And so I'm like, all right, sweet. So this detachment theory time, right? And so what do I do? I just walk. I just walk, and I walk, and I walk, and I say, bye, I'll see you later. And what I, the reason why I do that is because I know for a fact that they'll never le- let me go, that they will yell at me and say, no, dad, 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 we need you. Come back, come back, come back, without fail. Now, it's quite mean, and so look, I don't recommend it at all occasions, but every now and then, it's your last resort. If you're a parent, you know that. Um, Now, can I say a confronting truth, uh, which is going to be a bit painful for us to digest? All of us in many ways are like toddlers. All of us in many ways are like my boys. That we say to God, no, 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 God, I don't need you. I I don't need you. And I think that's why God tests us in a loving way to remind us that we do. That we do need his power, his strength, his provision, his wisdom, his goodness, his love, his salvation. 
And look, here's the thing. If you're in the learning profession, if you're a teacher, and I know there's a lot of you here are teachers, or if you're a lecturer, you would know that when it comes to learning, the way to learn is, it's, I think it's 70% experience, 20% networking, and 10% content. It's like a rough model they talk about when it comes to learning. And so when it comes to us learning that we need God, then obviously we're going to need 70% of experience. Like I could just tell you right now that you're arrogant, that you're forgetful, and that you need God. But the reality is you're not going to listen to me. You need to learn that experience for yourself. And so that's why I think God gives us these tests and these trials. But this is the thing I want you to pick up on, though, is that God does this to point out how glorious he is. You know, like Othniel, like he's boring, but you know, like, and he's a cool guy and he's a judge, but don't get distracted by him. Like his name is mentioned three times in those verses. God's name is mentioned six times. If you look at that story again, I know we didn't cover it, but we see that the Lord uh, responds to their cry for help. He raises up a judge, he empowers Othniel, and he gives the king into their hands. Or if you look at the story of Ehud, don't miss Ehud's words where he says, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. You see, these stories are about God's deliverance. These stories are about God's salvation, God's rescue, and how his people need him, and how God saves them, and how he saves them from the mess that they create. You see, this is one of the things that I love about the book of Judges, is that you know, when we read the book of Judges, we see that God is not like this God who steps out to the side, and he's got white gloves, and he says to you know, Israelites, hey, get some spray and white, fix up your lives a little bit, and then I'll come interact, and I'll come help you. He's a God that engages in the messiness, a God that saves his people despite their sin. You see, he wants us to rely upon his goodness and his grace and his salvation because we need him. We really do. We need him. You see, I hope we get this, that God tests us to teach us that we need him, to mature us and to make us more like Christ. Last year, I mean, not last year, at the start of this year, we actually studied the book of James. And in the book of James, at the beginning, I'm just trying to find it now. should have done that beforehand. That was dumb. Here we go. And it has a similar point. Let me read to you this verse. It'll come up on the screen about trials. James says this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We're all going through different trials in this room, be it major or minor, big or small. And what God wants us to understand is that we need him through this. We need him. As our sister Rhiannon, who's going through some trials herself, posted on Facebook, I think the last week, a great quote from John Piper, which says this, The sweetest gift God gives us when he wounds us is that he gives us more of himself. Let me repeat that. The sweetest gift God gives us when he wounds us is that he gives us more of himself. And maybe you're thinking, look, Joel, this is nice in theory, but in practice, this is really difficult. Maybe you're thinking, Joel, you know, the emotional pain I go through when relationships end badly is is heartbreaking. That the physical pain I go through when I have injuries or sicknesses or diseases is agonizing. You know, like the the, the frustration I go through when I'm unemployed or trying to find housing is, is incredibly difficult. The ups and downs of mental health is draining, man. It's frustrating. Like, I don't know if I can endure through these tests. If that's you, can I encourage you? And can I encourage you by pointing you to your Savior, our ultimate judge and king? Because you see, Othniel, look, he's a cool guy, but his peace doesn't last because he doesn't last. The peace that Jesus brings lasts because Jesus lasts forever. Ehud, he's okay, 
But the reality is, is that Jesus is the most unexpected, left-handed person of all. Someone who had nothing in his appearance to be desired. Jesus who saves us in the most unexpected way at the cross. Jesus who humbles the arrogant and saves the broken. Jesus who brought about a greater deliverance that any judge in the book of Judges does. Our Savior who endured the greatest tests at the cross so we don't have to. So that salvation may be won for us by faith in him. And so look, if you're going through some major trials tonight, can I encourage you to persevere? Can I encourage you that victory has been won at the cross, that your salvation is in his hands, that he has given you his Holy Spirit to help you. And so let the Spirit humble you. Let the Spirit remind you of his goodness. Let the Spirit teach you that you need God. If you're a non-Christian here tonight, can, can I encourage you in particular to not make the same mistake that the fat king made? to underestimate how God saves and who his deliverer is. And if you are a Christian, can I remind you that, yeah, God tests you to humble you. God tests you to remind you of his goodness. He tests you because you need him. Can I remind you that you can be arrogant, you can be forgetful, and your heart can freeze over. Can I remind you of all those things? In a moment, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And John Newton wrote this famous song. Uh, But about 300 years ago, he also wrote a letter in his mid-80s, to a friend of his. And this is roughly what he said in his letter. He said, Now in my mid-80s, I always thought at this point in my life, I would have been much farther past the sinful temptations of my 30s and 20s. But I look at my life now in my 80s, and many of these temptations have gotten worse, not better. He goes on to say that if spiritual progress is measured by being free from temptations and tests and trials, then I'm spiritually regressed, not spiritually progressed. But then he realized that actually spiritual growth is about growing in ever wonder and amazement of the grace and goodness of God. He goes on to say, Now I know that God has allowed these tests and temptations and trials in my life so that to my dying breath I'll know that I'm saved by amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The final thing I want to say before we pray is, you know what's interesting is this story is a funny story about Ehud. But my guess is, is at the time, the Israelites were not laughing. My guess is, as they were going through these tests and trials, they weren't giggling. But now they can reflect back on how God worked through that, how God saved and delivered them, and they can laugh. They know that there is triumph. And so it is the same for us here. And so can I encourage you to have joy and know that your God is good. He will get you through the tests and trials, and that he'll teach you through it. That once again, you will praise his name. How about I pray? Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who wants to teach us. You want to teach us that we need you because that is what is best for our souls. You're a God that wants to remind us of your goodness because you are good and too easily we forget. We thank you, Lord, that you are also a God who humbles us because we need that. And so, Father, I pray as you do this, that you help us to persevere by keeping our eyes on Jesus, our ultimate judge and saviour and deliverer who humbled himself to death on the cross, who remind us of your goodness and who taught us so clearly how much we need you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the band sings uh, these next two songs, we're also going to have a time uh, of communion.